0: Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Our experts on this episode number 10 on trauma pitfalls are Dr. Dave McKinnon and Dr. Mike Brzezowski. Dr. David McKinnon is an emergency physician and trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's also the emergency medicine postgraduate coordinator at that site. He completed his residency training at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Dr. Mike Brzozowski is an emergency physician and trauma team leader at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto, where he is the emergency trauma liaison with the trauma program. He completed his residency in emergency medicine at the University of Toronto in 1993 and trained in Toronto, New York, Denver, Baltimore, and Perth, Australia in the field of trauma. Trauma kills more people under 45 years of age than any other cause and death from trauma often occurs in the first few hours. What you do in those first few hours will make a huge impact on your patients' outcomes. Emergency docs in community hospitals provide much of this initial trauma care for the vast majority of trauma patients in Canada, and so you should be aware of the huge shift in how we care for trauma patients over the last 20 years. While ATLS is a great starter course for the unexperienced emergency doc, there are many key nuggets of wisdom that you should know about trauma that you can't find in the ATLS manual. In this episode, with the help of two expert trauma team leaders from the two designated trauma centers in Toronto, we'll discuss many of the pearls and pitfalls of trauma care. We'll talk about damage control resuscitation, including permissive hypotension, hemostatic control. We'll talk about the indications for transexamic acid, cryoprecipitate, recombinant factor 7a, and PCCs like Octoplex. We'll talk about intubation considerations, the best vascular access options, the limitations of imaging, the value of lab work in trauma, the value of trauma scores, the use of hypertonic saline, therapeutic hypothermia, managing raised ICP, how not to miss penetrating extremity vascular injuries, how best to prepare patients for transfer to a trauma center, the evils of pan scanning, and who needs a chest tube when. So without further ado... I'd like to welcome Dr. Pozowski and Dr. McKinnon and jump in with the big case. The cases for this episode have been truncated so that we can spend more time discussing the controversies and pitfalls rather than the details of the case. The first case is out of a 25-year-old male belted driver who was racing his car at 3 a.m. on a city street. He lost control and drove into a tree. He resented to the ED in profound shock with obvious major chest and abdominal injury and a GCS of 12. So first, I would like to talk a little bit about intubation considerations. In episode eight, we covered a ton of airway controversies, but when it comes to managing the airway of the trauma patient in particular, what are some of the considerations that you need to take into account?
1: Anatomically, is there any facial injury, facial fractures? Is he bleeding in the pharynx, which makes a really messy airway, I find particularly. It's funny, I find that worse, that a facial fracture is bleeding in the airway. Because to get in there, it's really hard to get a good view. It's often bleeding heavily. You almost can't
2: suction hard enough. So definitely the anatomical factors. With the messy airways, uh, anything with fiber optic technology, it's useless. So don't pull the bronchoscope out it when you've got a vomiting or bloody patient. Uh, And then uh, the choice of induction agent. Anybody
1: that wants to intubate a trauma patient safely should really be familiar with one of or both of Atomidate and Ketamine. And I would even argue this patient's hypotensive even in the trauma patient, significant mechanism who's got a normal blood pressure, I still don't want to use propofol or anything else because he's potentially unstable. He's potentially bleeding, so I would make an argument you would still in those use a or ketamine.
2: Yeah. Also, I think there's been recently a lot of discussion about ketamine. And five ten years ago, people were very reluctant to use ketamine, particularly in the face of a potential raised ICP. And I think that's pretty much gone out. At the window and that it's over exaggerated that uh, ketamine is going to cause a, a deleterious effect in these patients and I think it's pretty much agreed upon that it's now a pretty safe induction agent so I think from what you heard in the past you, you might reconsider using it uh, more frequently these days. I recently spent a year in Australia and, and they use ketamine actually routinely in their burn patients in the, in the pre-hospital care setting so these patients would come in and they're in that sort of hypnotic state from the ketamine and then, and then they wake up and uh, I never I didn't see any emergence phenomena. I know it's sort of anecdotal evidence but I think again that's probably overrated I, so, so they're already freaking out because they're on fire they're, <laughs> freak <laughs> more ketamine. Well, they're freaking out they're freaking out because they're yeah Dude, actually
0: uh, I mean the nice thing about ketamine is it has analgesic properties as opposed to etomidate which actually doesn't have any analgesic properties in itself keep in mind that for trauma patients you shouldn't always be going directly to RSI and And in the patient who you anticipate might be a very difficult intubation, you might want to start with a quick look. So Dr. McKinnon and Dr. Buzowski are now going to talk about how to do a quick look and which drugs to use and not to use for that.
1: Keep in mind, you can't RSI everybody. It's in patients you're confident you're going to be able to get that airway when you paralyze them. So we still have, you know, some patients we need to just take a quick look. And I was going to mention about Atomidate. but one limitation is... You can't just give a little bit without a paralytic. They get myoclonic jerks, and it can make it actually more difficult to take a look at. The standard dose is one vial, which is 20 milligrams. You don't want to squirt in five milligrams and pretend like you're going to try to have a look. It can actually be more difficult than if you just gave the patient nothing. So definitely that's, you know, you're going to go back to your fentanyl midaz. You might give them a squirt of propofol, I and mean, any of those things can potentially lower blood
2: pressure, but just keep that in mind about a You know, I, I teach residents, I like to categorize my patients into two decision points and one is is the patient alert or not so it's like the GCS of twelve or thirteen versus the GCS of three and then from there take a another decision point and say is the patient hypotensive or normal tensive and then if you have that algorithm there's four categories and you can decide. So for each of those four types of patients just decide what are the drugs I'm going to give in that situation. And they may be the same drugs at different doses but at least you have an approach and when that patient comes in, you know, okay, this guy's combative, kind of alert and awake and normal tensive. This is what I'm going to give him. I'm going to give him automatic and sucks. Versus the patient's GCS of three and you know has no blood pressure. I'm pretty much just going to stick a laryngoscope in there and see what I can see and put the tube in. So uh, it just sort of helps me to have parameters of what what kind of medications I'm going to use for those types of situations.
0: One of the frequently talked about pitfalls in trauma that our neurosurgeons sometimes get in the huff about is not doing a thorough neuro exam before paralyzing the trauma patient. How detailed of a physical exam do you guys suggest doing before you intubate and paralyze the patient?
2: Well, I think you're talking about two groups of patients. One one where the patient's awake and alert and you're intubating somebody for another reason. And that's pretty straightforward. The you know, patient's talking to you and, and able to sort of move all extremities. Uh, the, the more difficult situation, I think, is where the patient has a, a GCS of eight or less, and and you're really doing kind of veterinary medicine at that point. I like to see the response to pain, start, try to see if they can move all four extremities. And pupillary responses is something that you know really grabs my attention. So if they've got unequal pupils and a focal neurologic finding, I'm, I'm getting a little bit more concerned. So I think if you can you can identify the patient's moving all four extremities, has some response to pain. That's, I think, a pretty good indicator that probably their spinal cord is intact. Sure, there's going to be exceptions in subtle injuries such as central cord syndromes and things like that. But I think if you can identify the fact they're moving four extremities to painful stimulus, that's probably the most important score of the GCS is the motor score.
0: Just a refresher, if you don't remember what central cord syndrome is, it's one of the most common incomplete spinal cord lesions, particularly in older patients with underlying spinal stenosis. Contusion, edema, or ischemia of the central cord produces profound upper extremity deficits, often with greater preservation of the lower extremity function. So it's important to thoroughly test motor function in all four limbs.
1: Yeah, I think I agree. That's, it's probably important, that the patient with a low GCS, because the higher GCS, yes, I'd take a basic exam, you definitely want to look at pupils, if they're cooperative, grip strength, and plantar flexion, that's probably your basic trauma screening neural. But you got to remember the semi-conscious patient that you can do a neuro exam. And if they're they're really intoxicated or, again, just a really low GCS, you do want to see that they're moving all four because it will change your workup and what you do. And you don't want to sort of intubate and paralyze somebody when you haven't recognized that they're maybe hemiplegic. And often when they're really drunk, you might actually miss that. So give their sternum a really good rub. Make sure they're kind of moving all fours relatively equally. Uh, For example, if you have somebody that's hemiplegic after a major trauma, your CT head's normal. You got to go a step further. You probably you got to do a CTA of the neck, look for a vascular injury, blunt vascular injury. So you do have to work that up a little further. So yeah, I'd say Mike's right. Probably in the, in the uh, patients with a decreased GCS, get as good of a neuro exam as you can So for the ongoing neuro exam. So the uh, initial RSI meds you gave are going to wear off pretty quickly. So then you kind of got to choose your next meds, what you're going to keep them sedated with carefully. So for ongoing paralysis. We standardly just use rock uranium because the shortest acting. It's about forty five minutes. That's about the time get all your scans and get them read. And so when neuro comes down, patient hopefully will be start moving again, and they can get a sort of reassess them like an hour later. Right. So you probably don't want to give a long acting paralytic in these patients.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Also, on that same point, is a, we use propofol drips, and you just turn it off. This is time that, that's rock uranium wears off. This propofol all pretty much yeah. gone too, and then they can do their assessment.
0: Yeah. and I would agree with that. Yeah. Let's do a little review thus far. Some of the considerations that need to be taken into account when stabilizing the airway of the trauma patient are first anatomical considerations like facial fractures and bleeding. The patients whose airway is filled with blood is especially challenging and it's important to avoid trying fiber optic tools like bronchoscope or glidoscope in these situations. A bougie might be a better alternative airway tool to go to in the case of a badly bleeding airway. Next, in terms of choice of induction agents, etomidate or ketamine are your go-to drugs because they minimize hypotension. Dr. Brzezowski outlined a great approach to which drugs to choose for RSI in the trauma patient by first dividing patients into those with a normal blood pressure or low blood pressure, and then dividing those patients into ones with a normal or near-normal GCS and those with a low GCS and to know in advance which drugs you might use in those four situations. When you're faced with a difficult airway, you may want to take a quick look first, and in that case, you could use a small dose of fentanyl or midazolam or propofol, keeping in mind that they can all cause hypotension. Remember to avoid using small doses of etomidate, because you might end up with a patient that has myoclonic jerks and run even into more trouble. It's especially important in the obtunded or comatose patient to do at least a basic neurological exam, including a pupillary response and motor response of all four limbs, because a patient may have a cord lesion like a central cord syndrome, or may have a blunt vascular injury like a carotid dissection, both of which need further workups beyond just a plain CT of the head. As far as post-intubation meds go, the trauma experts prefer rocuronium which will last about 45 minutes, and propofol, which can be turned off quickly. Okay, let's talk a little bit about C-spine collars. C-spine collars have been associated with all kinds of badness, like collar-related decubitus ulcers, raised ICP, longer admissions, more time in the ICU, increased rates of pneumonia and delirium. Not only that, but there's good evidence that C-spine collars really only provide a small amount of immobilization and that the C-spine still does move a lot even inside the collar, especially if you're going to try and intubate with the collar on, which we don't. That's why we use manual inline mobilization. What could we be doing to minimize Potential iatrogenic injury related to c-spine collar use
2: well i agree with that actually anton that c-spine collars to me i'll sort of go out on a limb and say that they are a marker they're a sign that this patient's neck has not been cleared and that's about it so you can move your neck quite a bit in a c-spine collar And i think probably the best way to mobilize the neck particularly if it's a, a large person with a short neck it's difficult to get the collar on is a couple of sandbags and some tape, and that probably provides as much immobilization, if not more, than a C spine collar. Clearing the neck is is probably the priority in these patients, but that's often difficult in the acute situation. But if you're worried about the patient's neck, I'd probably just put them in some tape and some sandbags and take those precautions rather than necessarily putting a collar on.
1: I kind of agree. Yeah, I think you're right. You're right when you say the collar is just like a marker. I think it is just telling people to be careful. I've seen stuff where they've looked at people that don't even have a collar, and, you know, we're not flopping people's necks around. People are actually, if they're aware of a potential of a C-spine injury, people are pretty careful moving them. I think in terms of how do you prevent complications, I think your institution should just have some kind of policy about clearing them relatively quick. You don't want to leave people sitting around for two days in a collar for many reasons. One is ulcers and many things. At St. Mike's, we actually uh, have a spine clearing sheet. They, uh, again, because we were having a bit of a problem with getting the, the spine cleared properly in a in a reasonable time frame. It's just a way, a little checklist to say, yes, the CT's been done. Yes, it's been looked at by staff. Okay, can we take the collar off? So, another interesting point. I don't know what you guys do at Sunnybrook, but what if you get the patient that's badly head injured, GCS less than eight, and gets intubated, and the collar's on, CT scan's negative?
2: Yeah, they're so not going to
1: be awake for about a week. But so what do, you do with that?
2: Yeah, you're right. There are, again, two groups of patients, the ones that are going to wake up or you anticipate them to wake up relatively soon and then you can clear them clinically and that certainly helps. Most of our spine surgeons are happy if the CT is negative and the patient's going to be in a coma or a moribund state for a while they'll take the collars off.
1: Yeah, and that's um, what actually what we do too. There was a good paper that a few years ago that said that if the CT is completely negative, so again, this isn't just, so for bony fracture for soft tissue swelling again not just fracture the CT is negative negative that you're actually safe to take the collar off now again i think with anything you use a bit of judgment if the patient had some severe hyperflexion injury that makes you worry maybe that rare patient you want to keep the collar on the old way was you'd actually either wait till they wake up or you get an MRI because MRI will pick up a ligament injury so then it was a really big hassle getting the trauma patient down to the MRI machine. And, and that's why they would sit in these collars for about three days because people thought you had to get an MRI. So now, um, you know, when that paper came out, it just changed everything. Now we said, yes, you can adequately take it off with a norm, completely normal C-spine.
2: Yeah, I agree. That's Again, it's different than the awake patient in that if they have a significant amount of pain... Uh, particularly with movement, then we still do do X views or an MRI if we can get if we're suspicious of a ligamentous injury. But the obtunded patient, I think, is uh, that that's pretty much the standard of care right now. Is a CT negative? They're not going to be moving around any much, very much anyway. So we just take the collar off.
0: Okay, let's move on to vascular access. Are two large bore IVs good enough for the majority of trauma patients? What's your sort of favorite choice of location for a, a central line? If you, need, if you feel like you need to put in a central line, some people really advocate subclavian lines as the best for a sec trauma patient. What's your take on that?
1: The answer is, are two large-bore peripheral IVs adequate? Yes, in the majority of patients, for sure. That's more than adequate. Some people have this myth that a central line is somehow better. Well, if you have a, a narrow lumen central catheter, that's actually slower than a peripheral antecubital IV because of the length of it. You know, Generally, like an 18 gauge is, I believe, your standard central line. If you're going to do a central line for resuscitation in a trauma, you want the cordis, which is the huge, large bore. You can infuse fluids and blood products very quickly, which we'll talk about in a bit. might not be the best thing, but, but uh, anyway, if you do need access, you want to put in a cordis. You can always convert it to a triple lumen later by just sliding a triple lumen through.
2: Well, most of our patients are not the shocky hypotensive non-responders to resuscitation. Uh, that, that's a very small percentage of of our patients. So probably 5% or less. So yeah, I agree that it, you know if you're going to give some fluid, two antecubitals is, is plenty. The other point is just about the number of IVs. Sometimes you see patients coming in with like four or five IVs and, and it's really quite redundant. I think more than two, probably three IVs at most, even if you have a shocky patient, you just can't change the fluids on those three ivs fast enough so the other two ivs are just redundant so i think two good ivs possibly three if you've got a really bad case i find most of the action in a really sick patient is around the head and neck and chest so you know somebody's intubating the patient they got a collar on you can't get an ij exposure subclavian you've potentially risk of a a pneumothorax i like the femoral site nobody's down there nobody's (laughs) fooling around down in the pelvis and, well, uh, should we edit that statement out? <laughs> 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 and and you've got a nice clear uh, space to work, and uh, I find it's it's not that difficult to get femoral access.
1: And even in the really high-intensive patient where the
2: pulses are really really weak, you can feel the femoral triangle. Yeah, those, those of, are generally easier than any
0: neck veins you're going to find. Yeah, well, um,
2: got, like I said, you've got the problem with the collar on the patient and the blunt trauma patient, and mm-hmm. the IJs. You probably should be using ultrasound guidance to find yeah. that, and that takes time. Right, um, and, then, and then you can't,
1: so, you can't turn their neck to the side,
2: despite the fact that.
0: The femoral line has much higher complications in terms of infection, thrombosis. The subclavian has the least complications of any of them. But they can always put a subclavian in once the trauma patient's been transferred and stabilized. And
1: For sure, yeah. This is the patient that's really sick. This isn't your stable trauma patient that you know, you can wait and have a few different people try peripheral IVs. This is your pretty sick patient. So I'd sort of put the question, when was the last time your average eMERGE physician put in a subclavian line probably been a long time and in the heat of the moment you're going to be able to get one in pretty quickly like I'm not so sure but I I mean my impression would be that most people have done a femoral line that's kind of their go-to line that's mine that's kind of what I go to when I really need access or the arrested patient or the really sick trauma patient I think most of us are just more comfortable with that I think the big risk I mean infection any line put in in the emerge there's a high risk of infection our ICU generally changes our lines you know within about I think they have a policy Within 24 hours, something like that. But it's mainly the thrombosis. And yeah, it's a real risk for sure. You know, get it out as soon as you can. Again, they're probably, probably going to be changed within a day or two. But that's probably the bigger risk. But I think that risk is w- weighed by just the comfort with the procedure and the fact that it's more accessible.
2: The other little point is if you've got a really sick patient, you don't know where they're bleeding from, it's nice to have access above and below the diaphragm as well. So if you've got a femoral line and you've got a couple anticubital lines, um, I think you have covered off all your bases. If there's any you know, mass, big pelvic bleeding or, uh, you know, you worry yeah. about a, a big vein injury or IVC injury, then you've got the upper extremities that you're resuscitating as well.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, and that's the caveat. And then we get that a lot. So a gunshot or a stabbing patient to the abdomen, and you go to put in ephemeral, they're, they're often the patients that are the sickest, and you go to put in ephemeral, and there's this theoretical thing, well, what if the IVC is injured? I mean, I, first of all, I'd say if the aorta is injured, Most of those patients die on scene. Yes, they might make it, but most of those patients have died on scene. So what if the IVC is injured? Again, a lot of those patients die on scene. Most of the injuries aren't the IVC. And I think, you know, it's not like all the blood gets, you know, bleeds out in the abdomen or all the products you're giving gets out of the abdomen. Yeah, I'm probably going to want to try to get an upper extremity access in that patient as well. But I think you're still fine to go with the femoral because the vast majority won't have an IVC injury.
2: I'm going to throw another thing into the into the mix here that I know is a bit controversial, but I, I had a case about a month ago where there was a young fellow who was shot in the abdomen, and he unfortunately, as a young child, had about 95% of his body surface area burned, and we could not find any vascular access. It was completely keloid and, and scarred everywhere. And the only access we got was bilateral IO interosseous access in his uh, tibias, and we resuscitated him enough to get him to the OR. Unfortunately, he, he didn't make it. But the I.O. Is, is your rescue line. If you've got nothing else, I still do jump on that bang wagon and, and use it. There's some kits that are available now that are uh, pretty easy to use. It's like basically putting a, a drill bit in the tibia, and then you stick a line in, and, and uh, you can infuse yeah. anything through that. I think if
1: Ortho can do it, can do yeah. drill and <laughs> You know, That pretty much says anybody can. So. <laughs>
0: But yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, in kids, the I O is the first line you'd go to in a crashing kid for any reason, pretty much. You know, if because you can get an I O in way faster than an I V in in a one year old.
1: I was going to make a comment. So it's
0: interesting the case
1: you use because that's one of the rare cases I've heard where actually, absolutely, I think that's I O is absolutely indicated in that patient. Can, you know, burn most of the body, but. My sort of hesitation on the IO, I get the sense it's being promoted for widespread use. People are saying, you know, do one or two tries at a peripheral and then do the IO. And they're saying bypass the femoral line, just go right to the IO. I'm not sure we're at that point yet. I mean, I did, I've, the last couple weeks I've done a little literature search on the IO. I'm not so sure that gets into your circulation as quick. So the tibia, what's the drainage of blood from the tibia? Like is there a big vein coming out of there? Mm, I don't think so. So it's kind of getting soaked in. I haven't seen good literature on the rates that the fluids delivered. I'm a little hesitant. I think in the rare patient that you really can, I mean, you gave a good example of somebody that probably really needed the IO, I'm not ready to kind of jump on the bandwagon. And then on top of that, there's actually a couple case reports of amputations. One had compartment syndrome, one had necrosis of their lower leg from the IO and had to get amputated. So I'm not sure we're ready to jump on the bandwagon and put a hole in somebody's bone when again we're talking about a small percentage of people that get in the IV early really really makes a difference and then the, of those and even you know a very very small percentage that you truly can't get uh, access elsewhere yeah, i'm basically. just not ready to jump on the bandwagon right. i think it's one of those things you need to have a couple in your emerge that you should probably use once every you know i don't know once a year maybe or whatever it is
0: In this next section we're going to talk about damage control resuscitation that's dcr there's been a major shift in trauma management in the last 20 years where we used to use large volumes of crystalloid to maintain a normal blood pressure and then get the patient to the or for definitive repair of all injuries now what they were noticing was that to definitively repair all the injuries it took a long time in the operating room and those patients ended up dying because of the lethal triad this lethal triad is coagulopathy hypothermia and acidosis so what this concept of damage control resuscitation suggests that we do now is we try and get the patient to the OR just to temporize the bleeding and then they go to the ICU and try to prevent coagulopathy hypothermia and acidosis Get their physiologic parameters back to normal before they go back to the OR for a definitive repair. DCR can be divided into five components. First, there's avoiding hypothermia. Second, there's a concept of permissive hypotension, where we aim for a blood pressure lower than normal so that we don't pop the clot, so to speak. Third is the use of blood products over isotonic fluid for volume replacement. Fourth is the rapid and early correction of coagulopathy with component therapy. And the fifth is surgically temporizing the bleeding. So we're going to talk about each of these five components of damage control resuscitation in turn. Let's just talk a little bit about avoiding hypothermia. What are the things we can do as eMERGE docs in the emergency department when we receive that patient to help avoid hypothermia?
1: So I think this is something that's important. It's probably under-recognized. First of all, there's probably the base things you can do. You should have your trauma room warm. It should be for the patient, not for a staff in the, in the room. Because everybody's hot, everybody's running around. Some people are wearing, in ours, we are wearing lead, and so you're hot. But you should really have the room warm. When you're given fluids, again, if you're given significant amounts, you should probably be warming that up. So we keep some bags of saline in our, we actually have a warmer. It looks like a fridge, but it's actually the opposite. It's a warming fridge, if you want to call it that. Also, you can use your level one, which warms up the uh, the fluids very quickly. So either blood or saline, and of course, if you guys have seen them, you probably don't know what they look like. Just a big coil where um, it warms up pretty quickly within about five or ten minutes. Check their temperature. A lot of people just don't even do that. Make sure you're checking their temperature and kind of recognize if they're getting a bit cold. Because the whole problem with the hypothermia, they get more coagulopathic. It kind of adds to the problem. And they're already bleeding. They're already using up their products to try to stop bleeding. You're giving them things that's going to dilute their products even more. So you don't want to add hypothermia. It's
2: just another problem. And simple things like if you have a bear hugger or blankets, you can just warm the blankets up and put put them from the the warming fridge, as you say. We've got the blankets in there. And avoid the exposure. So you don't leave leave the patient naked, exposed in the cool uh, trauma room for a, a long period of time. Make sure you cover them up, examine them, and then cover them up. Yeah, we know that hypothermia, particularly with massive transfusion, is is disastrous. I mean, I think once your temperature reaches about 34 degrees, your mortality is about 40%, and then I think if it's less than 30 or 32 degrees, you're nearing 100% mortality in the face of massive transfusion. So certainly, yeah, the coagulopathy is the the main problem with hypothermia.
0: And so this is very different than the therapeutic hypothermia for head-injured patients, which we'll talk about later. Absolutely, So in terms of the first component of DCR, avoiding hypothermia, a quick review here, make sure you keep the trauma room warm, warm up the fluids, you can do it in a microwave or if you have a level one transfuser in the transfuser, monitor the patient's temperature, use a bear hugger or simply warm blankets and avoid keeping the patient exposed. The reason why we want to avoid hypothermia is because it adds to the coagulopathy, particularly with massive transfusion and it increases mortality. The second component of DCR is permissive hypotension. It basically is allowing the blood pressure to be slightly less than normal to promote thrombus formation while still providing enough perfusion to end organs. In other words, the goal of permissive hypotension is to prevent increasing the blood pressure to a threshold where forming a thrombus will not be able to achieve hemostasis and rebleeding occurs. This has also been called popping the clot. So the idea is that you want to keep the blood pressure low enough to avoid exsanguination while maintaining perfusion to the end organs.
2: Well, this, I think, started back in the mid-90s in, in, I think, one of the landmark papers was from Bickel in uh, Houston and basically they took penetrating truncal trauma patients and they, they randomized them to one of two arms and one was that they got no pre-hospital resuscitation and the second one was that they got the standard 20 cc's per kilo resuscitation of crystalloid and there was a modest increase in uh, survival in the non-resuscitated group which was kind of a, an interesting point uh, giving these patients no resuscitation in the pre-hospital care setting but they're actually doing better So this was sort of a paper that raised a lot of eyebrows and and, and people started saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be shooting for, you know, the normal, quote-unquote, blood pressure of 120 over 80 or whatever, and that we allow these patients to remain hypotensive. theory is that, that you're not going to pop that clot off the aorta or the vessel that's uh, been ruptured and if you raise the blood pressure higher then it may sort of dislodge the clot and cause more bleeding and there's mm-hmm. lots of animal studies and, and some clinical trials that have shown that, that that to be true i think the one caveat with that is that once when it was talking only about penetrating trauma not blunt trauma and it also occurred in a in a center that Probably not a lot of us could uh, practice this at home because they had very short ED to OR times. So the patients arrived, they had a trauma surgeon standing by, they're in the OR within, you know, minutes and they're doing a definitive procedure and that is stopping the bleeding surgically. So that that was one of the caveats with that. But I think we're all a little bit more conscious of the fact that we don't need to resuscitate our patients to a normal blood pressure anymore. It's okay to let them have a little bit of hypotension. My general rule of thumb is if the patient's awake and alert and they have a radial pulse, that's probably good enough. Again, about 20% of our patients also have a significant head injury. And the worst thing you want to do for a head injury, uh, we know that the mortality increases with hypoxia and hypotension. So this is not the group that you want to apply permissive hypotension to. That is the, the patients with close head injury.
1: Even one documented episode of hypotension With a significant head injury, makes for a really bad outcome.
2: So in the non-head
0: injured patient, what kind of blood pressures are you aiming for? So I don't like
1: putting a number to it for a couple of reasons. I like Mike's thing where if you're awake, you have a radial pulse, I'm happy. If you get the 20-year-old slim female and you have the uh, 80-year-old who's got a history of hypertension, you're aiming for very different numbers. And so in the 20-year-old female, her normal blood pressure might be 90 on 60. So you're happy with less than that, whereas in the hypertensive patient, you're not really happy with 90 on 60. It's kind of, again, it kind of depends. I know there's some hard numbers out there. Some people say to use the MAP. Some people say use the diastolic blood pressure. There's different things.
0: Right. So the MAP is supposedly a better indication of tissue perfusion than the systolic blood pressure is. And so a, a lot of traumatologists recommend using the MAP to guide you. Do you think we should be using these devices, these central venous catheter devices to measure tissue perfusion? Should we be going with what you said, just sort of the basic blood pressure depending on the patient? Should we be using the MAP? What, what can we tell our listeners in terms of our, what, well, what to guide us?
1: I'll sort of talk about the MAP first. I mean, my take on it is this: is that most of us aren't sitting there calculating the MAPs. Some of the BP monitors will sort of show you the MAP in really tiny letters. I just don't think, I think with the, sort of the lack of real evidence that it really makes a big difference to pick a number, and the fact that the map isn't right there on the monitor in front of you, that I'm not sure we should be aiming for an exact map. I think most of us still look at the blood pressure and the heart rate. One of the problems with things is you've got to put the whole picture together, is how quick are you going to go to the OR? Are you on your way up right now? Are you going to be delayed for an hour? Are you at another center where you have to transfer for an hour? So I think there are too many factors just to pick a number and sort of say
2: yeah and I think uh, these venous monitors I, I think be technically difficult. we don't certainly use them and i am sort of a an old school purist that I'm still going back to my clinical indicators and as the patient awakes, patient making urine, you know they're well perfused clinically, and certainly if they're unstable, then the definitive treatment is to get them to where they need to be and fix the problem. that's the or. So, yeah, I think I still rely more on clinical uh, judgment than uh, any fancy monitors.
1: Yeah, we actually had the tissue SAT monitor for a while, sort of for a trial period. Uh, I mean, one of the problems, it took you a while to learn what number was normal and what what number means what. And then the second thing is, what do you do with that?
0: The other thing is you have a big trauma team and many people involved. Systolic blood pressure is something that everyone understands automatically. And so as soon as you start using these different numbers, then then it kind of takes you a minute to figure out, well, what are you talking about? And then exactly. the communication, and then some people are using systolic blood pressure, and then some people are using MAP, and some people are using the tissue, and then the communication lines break down and as we all know that's extremely important to have good communication lines in a trauma patient
1: and i think mike made a good point where you kind of got to to use some clinical acumen i mean there's not everything can be simplified to one number and so people start focusing on the map and they forget about looking at the patient and how are they doing and how quick are they getting to the or i think you got to use many things you got to use the heart rate and so i guess
0: generally speaking we don't want to over resuscitate the patient, we don't want to be aiming for a blood pressure of 140 generally. And for whatever you think that patient's baseline might be, we don't have to aggressively give them tons of fluid in order to to crank their blood pressure up.
2: Yeah. There's one caveat I think that needs to be mentioned in that in Canada, we certainly have the the challenge of lots of rural trauma and, and long transport times. And I don't know that anybody's really looked at this too carefully, but your transfer time to a trauma center is going to be two hours. You know, are you happy leaving these patients hypotensive for that period of time? Much different than in an urban setting when the transfer time is like 10 minutes or so. So I think that's one of the challenges, particularly if the patient has blunt trauma and the pressure's 80 and you're in Collingwood and you're coming to Toronto. That's a bit more difficult to answer and I, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I worked up in Moose Factory which
1: is way, way, I mean, Collingwood is the deep sound <laughs> compared to Moose Factory. It is up on basically the Moosney River, which empties into James Bay, which and the Hudson Bay. It's really far. It's closer for me to go to the northern tip of Florida than to go to Moose Factory. That's how far north it is. So that's not patient going to be two hours. That's a patient could be eight hours before you get them to a trauma center. Brings up a great point. Do you leave somebody hypotensive for eight hours? I don't know. I'd sort of, again, I'd probably look at a lot of factors. Are they mentating? I'd probably keep their blood pressure up enough that they're mentating and awake, probably get my surgeon on the phone
0: so in review suffice to say that you want to keep the blood pressure a little bit below normal you certainly don't want to be over resuscitating the patient which will increase the risk of hypothermia the other downsides of over resuscitation is that it can lead to pulmonary edema abdominal compartment syndrome extremity compartment syndrome it can exacerbate intracranial pressure it can also lead to ards And it is associated with prolonged ICU stays.
2: People are starting to understand a little bit more about coagulopathy and trauma. And we used to think it was primarily dilutional, and and that was the only reason that people got coagulopathic. But there was a, a great study from London, England, where the helicopter service there studied all their trauma patients when they arrived and they had received minimal fluid, like uh, probably less than a liter of crystalloid. And I think about 40% of them already had a coagulopathy present from their injury. So that's an INR greater than 1.5. So we now know that not only is crystalloid resuscitation causing coagulopathy, but also their injury is actually precipitating some coagulopathy in itself. So we've
0: talked about the first and second components of DCR, that's hypothermia and permissive hypotension. Next we're going to talk about the use of blood products and specifically the use of blood products rather than the use of a lot of crystalloid for volume replacement. Traditionally resuscitation has begun with a couple liters of crystalloid followed by packed red blood cells and then followed by FFP after one blood volume is lost and then what often happened was there was unacceptable coagulation lab profile that came back a few hours later. And then you chased all that down, again, not being proactive about the coagulopathy. So there's a new concept now of a one-to-one-to-one ratio of packed red blood cells, FFP, and platelets that you give early on in the resuscitation. So the following discussion is going to be about this
2: one-to-one-to-one ratio. I think the most difficult thing for me clinically for these patients is deciding what's the trigger to start the damage control resuscitation who are the patients that are going to need this and how to identify them early on because patient comes in with some moderate hypotension are we going to start giving them blood products right away or you know most of them are responders so you give a litter of fluid and they they stabilize and their bleeding is somewhat minimized uh, and they don't continue on bleeding and they probably don't need any blood but it's the ones that are the obvious Hemorrhagic shock. They've got a proximal amputation of their leg. You know they're going to need blood products. Those are probably the ones that the literature suggests, primarily from literature in the military, that are going to need massive transfusion and, and lots of blood products. And those are the ones I think we should maybe hold back a little on the crystalloid and start giving blood products early.
1: But if you look at where the, the the current literature then comes from, these the military studies, what they're just retrospective looks back at really sick trauma patients, and they looked at the ratio that different people got in, I mean, the one study that uh, I can, uh, comes to mind was they, they divided into three groups. One was kind of if they got five to one or greater. Another one was two to one. Another one was one to one. Well, the problem with that study is personally got eight to one. They probably got about 16 units of blood and you know maybe two units of FFP. Well, that patient was really sick. Patients got one to one. I don't think anybody was getting 16 units of blood and 16 units of FFP because people haven't really been doing that. So, it sort of selects out that the people with the higher ratios probably got a lot more units of blood and so by definition they were sicker so I'd expect their mortality to be higher so they've sort of converted that into saying well that it's because they got more units of blood that's why they had worse outcomes and I'm not sure we're ready for that I think you need a randomized trial to be honest for something like this we don't know whether you can give four units and not, nothing else and you'll probably find those patients get four units whether it's six units you should start giving one-to-one like we don't really know i think you probably need a, this is something that really needs a randomized trial
2: yeah that, that trial is actually happening and it's going to start in the new year probably you know, we're one of the centers i think that's going to be involved with the with the u.s there's a great paper by a, an investigator named snyder in journal of trauma in february of 09 and he talks about this concept of without getting too technical about it, but it's an important point, is it's called survivor bias. And essentially, fresh frozen is more difficult to get from your blood bank. So you've got packed cells usually in your trauma bay and they're readily available right away. So you can start giving red cells right away, but fresh frozen takes about 90 minutes, maybe 60 to 90 minutes for it to thaw and then get into the trauma bay. So in those studies, if you look at the time that the patients received their blood products, Most of them got the red blood cells right up front, like Dave said. And then after about 90 minutes, you start giving fresh frozen. And it's the patients that received a lower ratio of fresh frozen to red blood cells died before they could actually get the fresh frozen.
1: If somebody survives for five hours, they're going to get a lot more FFP and the ratio is going to be good. somebody only survives two hours, they probably got 16 units of blood and two units of FFP. So they got that you know, bad, so-called bad ratio, but it's just because they were going to die
2: anyway. So they died before they could get the good ratio is the bottom yes. line. And yeah. uh, the ones that are going to live probably lived anyway, and yeah. the ratio was in, inconsequential. Based so all
0: that, that being said, how many units of red cells do we need to give before we start with FFP,
2: before we start with platelets? Probably when you're looking around one body volume of blood, so four to eight units of packed red cells, I think that's probably the trigger that I'd start giving fresh frozen or platelets as well. So our protocol is about four units of blood, and then you should start thinking about giving some clotting factors.
1: Yeah, and I think that makes sense. I mean, I think the answer to the question
2: really is probably we don't know yet. We don't know when you should start this. If you do a fast and the belly's full of blood and you've got a pelvic fracture and the patient's still normal tensive, I'm still probably giving that patient some blood early on, even before they start to crash. There's a whole bunch of things that are controversial about this damage control suscitation. It's also gonna wreak havoc on the blood banks. The universal donor for fresh frozen is is from a patient that is AB positive. Okay, so they don't have any of the antibodies that you'd be concerned about when you're transfusing somebody with fresh frozen. So it's the opposite of of red cells. It's the O negative is the universal donor for fresh frozen, it's AB positive. The problem with that is that, first of all, about 4% of the population is AB positive, so getting those donors is going to be difficult. And on top of that, about 40% of the donors are males. and The problem with female donors is that they have these HLA antibodies and that are predisposed patients to trally or, or transfusion-related mm-hmm. lung injury, so you've got a really select population of ab positive donors if we started giving damage control to everybody you'd probably tax the blood banks on this fresh frozen supply pretty quickly
1: yeah what do you think i've, I've heard people talk about back going back to good old whole blood yeah
2: yeah that's uh, I mean, that's
1: guys everything in it it's got your exact mix it's coming around again and yeah. i think
2: there's some studies in the military again that are looking yeah. at that i'm told it's really
1: difficult to store that And the half-life is a lot shorter. That's part of the reason, I think, that they separate the products when you donate it. Plus, you give a unit of blood, you can actually then help many people. Like, somebody just needs platelets, maybe at some point we'll go back to whole blood. Yeah. Again, what's
0: uh, old is new again, huh? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So, we've come to the last component of damage control resuscitation, and that is surgically temporizing the bleeding. So, we've talked about avoiding hypothermia, permissive hypotension, the use of blood products over crystalloid for volume replacement, and the rapid and early correction of coagulopathy with component therapy. So here goes Dr. McKinnon talking about surgically temporizing the bleeding.
1: Our surgeons have really kind of gotten on board with. You get, let's say, our first case where a really injured patient, young person, is really hypotensive, multiple sites of bleeding, and get him to the OR quick. Basically, you want to stop the bleeding. What they've really gotten away from. Is spending a long time in the OR. ORs aren't good for the patient's coagulopathic state and so what they do is that you just they do a trauma laparotomy, open up and you just pack all four quadrants, examine everything. They don't sit and fiddle around and fix the liver, fix the spleen, necessarily even do the splenectomy. Just pack and then go to the ICU and let the patient's uh, coagulopathy recover.
2: Well I met you at the blood bank. We were-
0: So that's about all we have to say for damage control resuscitation for now. Remember that there aren't any really good randomized control trials yet that show improved survival for damage control resuscitation. But in 2011, hopefully we'll have the definitive answers. For now, that seems to be the way we're going. And hopefully when we have the results of these new studies, we'll have our definitive answer and it will become the standard of care. In the next section, we're going to talk about the best fluid to use in the initial resuscitation, whether that's normal saline, ringers lactate, or hypertonic saline. And then we'll go on to talk about the value of lab work in the trauma patient. In terms of which fluid to use initially when the patient arrives, there's been arguments that you should use normal saline, that ringers is better than normal saline, that they're the same. And then there's hypertonic saline, which is a little bit of a newer idea where they argue that it'll provide a more favorable fluid balance and some small studies that show that there's shorter ICU stays and fewer complications like ARDS and sepsis when you use hypertonic saline versus normal saline. So what's your take on
2: the best initial fluid for patients? Well, there was a Cochrane database review in, I think, 04 that looked at this question specifically in, I think it was in surgical patients and trauma patients. And Essentially they found no difference in mortality, it didn't matter what fluid you gave, This was saline, ringers or colloid in fact. So in the majority of our patients I don't think it matters what you give them, the really sick ones it might make a difference but I don't think anybody's really shown a difference in in survival in in, uh, any of those patients.
1: I like to think I'm a nice simple guy and I think in eMERGE we've got lots to think about and I want to keep things nice and easy and simple. So our take on it was, want to keep things nice and simple, saline's readily available, it's cheap, it's there, it's compatible with pretty much anything you want to give, medication or blood. Ringer's Lactate is one of those things where it's completely a theoretical benefit. It's just theoretical why it's better. Okay. And, and I think the caveat is, once in the patient where uh, you need to give more than a couple liters, that's where you've got to then stop and think, because there's problems with too much saline. But for your initial, I think saline's fine when you get to too much then you start to get thinking about hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis and you get into problems like that so you don't want to give somebody 6 liters of saline i mean ideally you don't want to give it to be anybody 6 liters of you know non blood products whatever but maybe there's the rare patient that you're long transfer time and really sick and ends up getting a lot of fluids but so once we hit
0: 2 or 3 liters then yes i'm kind of reaching for something else and for
2: hypertonic saline so yeah it's interesting i mean i I haven't closed the door on hypotonic saline yet and i think the most quoted trial was the australian one with a guy named cooper so he was looking at the patients at the worst of the worst so these are the patients who are hypotensive like blood pressure less than uh, 90 i believe and uh, gcs of 8 or lower and they were either randomizing them to standard resuscitation or hypotonic saline now, if you read the trial, they say there was no significant difference in mortality. Both study groups did better than their predicted mortality, so it's a bit of this Hawthorne effect. When you're under the, the microscope doing a study, then, then they perform better, and so their survivals are better. But if you look at the way they set the trial up, they were looking for a 20% improvement in survival in, between the two groups. So, I challenge you to tell me another therapy that increases survival by 20% in patients that are already GCS 8 or less and hypotensive. So, they're... they're How about sp- anything in medicine, period? Yeah, that decreases... <laughs> well, maybe chemotherapy. Well, maybe chemotherapy. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a very ambitious study. And so, they didn't show significance in their survival statistics, but they were so ambitious and such a lofty goal that I think they showed trends towards improvement in survival. And I think that's why people look at that study and still say, okay, maybe if they were a little less ambitious, they may have shown, like if they shot for like a 5% decrease in mortality, that might have been something they could have achieved. But the power of the study was not such that they could show this huge improvement. I agree. It's not sort of mainstream and I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready to use it routinely but i still think it, there's some hope for it and i think there's probably still some studies that need to be done for that
1: maybe they help a very very select group of these people but you're right they just haven't shown it yet with hypertonic saline they haven't shown it with ringers and so it hasn't been accepted for widespread use
0: yeah that actually brings us to what the value of lab work and trauma patients is in general so there's some people who like to use the base deficit there's some people say that lactate is better than the base deficit can you just give us an idea of whether you find lab work and trauma useful at all, and if you do, what do you use?
1: Sure. So let me maybe jump on this one first, because sort of one of my flags is that there's a big push in the surgery world that the specifically the arterial-based deficit is kind of the best blood work marker. And... I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the literature basically, a lot of it on it, supporting it, is written by surgeons in the U.S. There's a, is specifically a couple that are very influential, and they really believe that it is. And so it's almost like opinion papers. And There was one study that I love. It was basically compared the venous bicarb, just on your venous regular electrolytes. The venous bicarb versus the arterial base deficit showed that it was exactly the same. And I think there are a lot of markers you could use. The reason surgeons want a marker like this, so again the ones mainly ones been used are the arterial-based deficit, venous-based deficit, bicarb, or lactate. They feel they're a sign of underperfusion of the tissues. And yes, they are for sure. You get acidotic when you get underperfusion of the tissues. So they want something to supplement, looking at the patient clinically, seeing where their bleeding is to decide if this is a patient that needs or So if you have a small spleen injury, do they need OR or can they be observed safely? A lot of spleen and liver injuries are now managed non-operatively. And the one reason that's a problem is because now you have to do an arterial puncture. If you really want the arterial-based deficit, and that's sort of the one thing, I mean, it's going to delay you a few minutes in the trauma room. And is it worth it when you can just get the venous bicarb or do a venous blood gas with your regular blood work? And you've got, to me, it's the exact same equivalent number.
2: I don't rely on any of those parameters very much so in the trauma bit. The only thing you wanna get is the creatinine so you know if you can give the patient contrast <laughs> or not in the C T scan. Well, but but you're even gonna even if they are in renal failure, you're still gonna give it. You
1: do. Yeah. I mean
2: well your protocol, yeah.
1: we just give the contrast. Correct. I mean right. and deal with it after. Yeah. The risk of contrast induced nephropathy is really low, even in patients with a high creatinine. And so we our standard is to give it. We don't, actually don't wait for it.
2: the techs are always asking what's what's the creatinine. We
1: just kinda we've we've now trained that we just over Right. Fair enough, yeah. It isn't nearly fast enough for you. It isn't nearly fast enough for you. It's what I was afraid of. I stumbled
2: into you.
0: Okay, let's go on to our second case. This is a case of a 40-year-old emergency doctor who's a marathon runner as well who fell asleep at the wheel while driving home on the highway after an overnight shift. He rear-ended a tractor trailer. He comes in complaining of belly pain with perfectly normal vital signs and a GCS of 15. One common pitfall in trauma patients is the failure to recognize early shock. Which patients do we need to have our radar out for when it comes to occult shock? What are some of the clues that the patient could be in occult shock?
1: I mean, I think we're all going to look at the vital signs. That's gonna Which is going to tell you, is he in shock or is he not in shock? But So the person that comes in with normal vital signs, I think a big thing probably we all look at is what was the mechanism? Do you have a mechanism that he could have a significant injury? And if he does, then I'm worried about him. I worry that he's bleeding. You know, you could call it occult shock, like he's going to become hypotensive soon, but I would just say I'm worried that he's bleeding, that we're going to need to do something. I mean, our trauma director is always saying he considers any trauma patient unstable until you've proven that they're stable. So until, until you've worked on the workup and done the, any imaging you need, and then you can say, okay, I've got all these studies. This is, these are his injuries. Now I'm happy. But until then you just got to presume that anybody with a significant mechanism is, or may be bleeding. And you want to find that out
0: soon. That's great. So every patient is unstable until proven. Otherwise until they prove that they are. And every patient has every injury you can think of until proven otherwise.
2: So Dave, you you hit on the history, I'll go to the trauma physical, and, and it has to do sort of more with physical exam and in investigations, but by and large, hemorrhagic shock is caused by one of four things. The blood is either in the chest, it's in the abdomen, it's in the retroperitoneal space, most often caused by a pelvic fracture, or it's on the floor, meaning uh, it's bleeding into an extremity or out of an extremity, or there's a laceration, or the blood's on the floor. So you can easily eliminate those areas or, or rule in those areas of hemorrhage by a chest x-ray, a fast examination, and a pelvis x-ray, and then just looking at the patient. So I think if you see blood in any of those areas, you see a big hemothorax or a positive fast, then you've got the potential of blood loss and you can anticipate the patient may be going into shock. I think the other thing to remember is that I don't like using categorizations of shock, but if you if you do look at the ATLS classification shock you, you only start to become hypotensive after you 've lost thirty percent of your blood volume, so you 're down a liter and a half of blood and then you start to get a dip in your blood pressure so that if that's the first time you see a, a change in your vital signs it's almost too late at that point. so again, a high index of suspicion from your mechanism and and those looking at those four areas of common blood loss I think are your useful indicators
0: okay, and the patients in particular I mean this patient's a marathon runner healthy young guy whose resting heart rate is probably about 50 and if he comes in and his heart rate is 70 then that's a relative tachycardia what are some of the other patients we really need to look out for in terms of interpreting their vital signs
1: we all sort of focus on blood pressure but we got to keep in mind it's age age dependent so the elderly patient you expect them to be they're probably walking around most of them when we see it for other reasons in the ed they're hypertensive or they have relatively high blood pressure so their pressure of 110 on 70 might be really low for them so that's again why you want to work them up really look at the mechanism do your physical as mike said you want to get your chest pelvis x-ray and fast pretty quickly that'll give you a pretty good idea whether you should kind of worry about them a little more
2: yeah and don't forget about uh, patients on medications too so you guys on a tenolol a beta blocker and they're not going to respond in the same fashion that that somebody who's not beta blocked is going to get a a tachycardia with the hypotension so yeah, good point. The elderly patients, I think, are particularly worrisome and that they have very abnormal vital signs at the best of times, and uh, so normal vital signs may be a, a harbinger of things to bad things to come.
1: Yeah, you could probably extend from medications to drugs, so a patient comes on cocaine, maybe they're going to be tachycardic hypertensive, they're going to maybe keep their blood pressure up a little bit.
0: So the big pitfall here is assuming that a normal heart rate and blood pressure excludes hemorrhagic shock. There have been a few recent studies that showed that heart rate was neither sensitive nor specific for identifying patients with hypotension. Elderly patients are a whole different kettle of fish as far as interpreting vital signs and trauma goes. They're often on multiple medications and they may mount a deceptive response to hemorrhage partly because their baseline heart rate and blood pressure might be very different. Let's say the patient comes in with a low blood pressure, you give them some fluid and their blood pressure normalizes. Don't assume that the bleeding has stopped. The patient with significant ongoing hemorrhage may show an alternating pattern of normotension and hypotension. They call this a sort of saw-tooth pattern. You might be lulled into believing that the response to volume resuscitation with elevation of the blood pressure represents the bleeding being stopped. This so-called sawtooth pattern of alternating normal tension and hypotension often reflects transient response to ongoing or intermittent fluid resuscitation. What you don't want to do is assume that each fluid bolus returns the patient to a state of normal physiology when in fact the overall shock state and acidosis is worsening. Next, we're going to talk about a couple of the trauma scores like the ABC score and the TASH score. In terms of predicting which trauma patients are going to get really sick, there's a couple of trauma scores like the ABC score, which stands for assessment of blood consumption score, and there's the TASH score, which stands for trauma-associated severe hemorrhagic score. They're supposed to help us predict which patient's will require massive transfusion and which patients will really get very sick. Do you find these scores useful at all?
1: I don't use those two that uh, you mentioned. I think there are other ones out there. You know, you can always come up with cases that are going to fall through the cracks. So uh, one of those, the, one of the criteria is systolic blood pressure, less than or equal to 90. So if you've got the slim 20-year-old female whose normal blood pressure is 88 on 50, all of a sudden you know, she gets whatever it is, 3 points or something. You get the patient with ascites from liver disease. He's got a positive fast, and that's one of the criteria. All of a sudden, he gets five points, and you know he jumps up on the scale. So there's lots of problems with these scales. And I think they've shown it with other things in medicine. The Welch criteria came out, and it was great and perfect. And then when they look back at other studies, it actually physician judgment's just as good. You know, the San Francisco syncope rule, first study, it looks awesome. Our population is really good. Then they try to replicate it, and it doesn't look good anymore. So, and physician judgment was actually better in one study than the San Francisco synchrome. There's lots of rules like that. And that's why I haven't sort of taken on these scores. I just don't think they're very useful. They're not going to guide mm-hmm. you. In fact, I think if anything, they could mislead you into the trauma, room, either to thinking the patient's more stable than they are, or they're more unstable
2: than there. I'm a pretty simple guy, and I have trouble remembering the Glasgow Coma Score. So, uh, oh, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so remembering all these other scores. I mean, that's, that's criticism behind the uh, Canadian C spine rule and the CT head rules are that they're too complicated, and Nexus is much simpler. But so I think that applies to these rules as well. I, I have a hard time remembering all unless I had them on my trauma sheet every time and, and referred to them. Like a simple thing, like.
1: Is your ankle fractured? You can come up with a nice rule and do less x-rays. But a complicated question like which of this trauma patients who are, have every system of their body involved, which one is really sick and which one's not, it's just too complicated of a question to, I think, simplify to a score.
2: Let's keep this simple.
0: In the patients whose blood pressure is bottomed out and they aren't really responding to blood products and crystalloid at high infusion rates with good lines, is there any role for phenylephrine to maintain the blood pressure in order to temporize the patient before they get to the OR?
1: I think my take is there's no role for pressors in trauma, except for one specific instance, and that's where you have a neurogenic shock. So if you have a high spinal injury, they've lost their sympathetic trunk and they're hypotensive and bradycardic, then you need a presser, especially a lot of those patients are head injured, you don't want hypotension, and they can't keep their blood pressure up with catecholamines, and so you need to replace that. For me, that's the only incidence. Have I given it? Yeah, have I given epi? Have I given phenylephrine? Yes, I have, but probably realizing it's making me feel better, it's probably not doing anything for the patient. You know, the answer for hypotension and trauma, it's stop the bleeding and give them fluids and blood, to get them to a
2: place where you can stop their bleeding. Yeah, I think, I think I agree with that. You'd be better served looking for the site of hemorrhage. And then once you've proven that it's not hemorrhagic shock, and that, which could which t- probably take you a little while, then you can maybe consider using some pressors the extreme scenario that i think we give pressers is when patients have cardiac arrest from blunt trauma or penetrating trauma then i think i'm using epinephrine to try to resuscitate the patients but generally speaking it's volume volume and blood products and uh, look for the site of hemorrhage
0: There's recently been quite a lot of hype around the use of hemostatic drugs and trauma like recombinant factor VII, prothrombin complex concentrates like octoplex, and tranexamic acid. Let's talk about each one of these in turn. So recombinant factor VII, there was this big trial called the CONTROL trial that was actually recently reviewed at the U of T Journal Club. And the bottom line from that seemed to be that recombinant factor 7 really wasn't that useful except for in hemophiliac patients and actually hot off the press in the new england journal just in november they reviewed a large cohort of placebo-controlled trials which showed that it actually increased the risk of arterial thromboembolic events like mi especially in the elderly so what is your take on recombinant factor 7 do you use it Do you recommend it?
1: We don't. We used it for a short period of time. I'd say in general, the blanket statement would be, no, we don't. Occasionally, it's still used for a massively bleeding patient. My take is I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist when it comes to pharmaceutical companies and new drugs. And so to me, this control-2 trial, it's just basically the same story coming full circle with many other drugs or interventions that we've done that cost money and that somebody's making money off of so nazerotide for chf with factor 7a the early trials small studies it looks really good it seems to stop the bleeding they don't recognize the complications because we don't have enough patients yet they haven't hasn't been put into widespread use so in the early trials the rate of thrombotic events is low because they have low numbers they sort of sell it as it's a great drug, kind of somewhat gets widespread use, and now we have the bigger trials saying, no, hold on a second.
2: Yeah, we, we did use it for a while as well, and it was sort of hot off the press as well. I think it's well recognized that you know tissue factor exposure is one of the things that triggers this, and patients that are elderly with atherosclerotic disease and septic patients as well, probably relative contraindication for giving it, and that's borne out by the fact that there were more complications in those patients.
0: Another study that was recently reviewed in our journal club was the randomized controlled trial called the CRASH-2 trial, which compared the antifibrinolytic tranexamic acid to placebo in about 20,000 patients uh, with bleeding or who are at risk for significant bleeding. What should we take away from the, the CRASH-2 trial?
1: It showed a decrease in mortality. We're talking about 20,000 people. That's a large study. This probably wasn't by chance. It was a 1.5% decrease. It was in many countries, including the developing world, and I'd like to know where I think that their surgical care for trauma patients is not, they don't have the capacity, I don't think that we have the luxury of here. I'd be really curious to see the difference between the developed world and the developing world. I'd imagine that the medication helped a lot more in the developing world where they don't have as quick access to surgical management, where patients where they're kind of moderately injured. They just didn't have the OR capability, or it was very delayed, and so maybe giving them a little bit of extra something to help them clot maybe helps those people.
2: Yeah, you know that—that's the big criticism that it was such a, a heterogeneously diverse population that was studied in, in various centers. A couple points on it. I, I think it's a relatively benign treatment, though. I don't know the numbers exactly, but I don't think there's that many serious side effects. It's used pretty extensively in our hospital in the OR and for gynecologic bleeding and they give it out like water. It's pretty safe. I kind of liken it to, you know, the patient you see that you think that maybe they had a TIA, maybe they didn't. It's, well, we'll give them aspirin anyways because it probably isn't going to hurt them and it might help them. And I think this is kind of in that league. We are going to start using this in our patients and the triggers are uh, patients that are hypotensive, and after they receive one unit of blood so if you're going to transfuse them a unit of blood we're going to give them a gram of transexamic transexamic acid over 15 minutes and then another gram over eight hours so this is going to be part of our protocol and it is going to be kind of a study protocol but like i said i'm not sure there's a real downside the one thing that we're not going to administer for our patients with gross hematuria because it's been shown that you can actually clot off your ureter and, and precipitate renal failure. So if you have gross hematuria, you may think it's a good idea to give it because it's going to stop some bleeding, but you probably shouldn't because you don't want to create a clot in the in the ureter. But with all these procoagulants, I think the one area which I don't think the question's been answered is so you, you've got a patient, they're relatively stable, and um, you do a CAT scan, and they've got a, a small liver laceration. It's not actively bleeding. Are those the patients that we should be maybe giving these things to to prevent them from getting secondary hemorrhage or from bleeding in the ICU? And I don't know if anybody's answered that question, but it kind of it raises a point of interest that you've got stable injuries, but should we give them some procoagulant to, to perhaps prevent it from further bleeding?
0: The bottom line with these procoagulants are first recombinant factor 7a is probably generally on its way out because we're recognizing now that there's a lot more complications than we originally thought when the original trials came out especially in elderly patients with atherosclerotic disease or septic patients for example. Some experts still believe that factor 7a should be considered when there is severe hemorrhagic shock that's persistent beyond the administration of six to eight units of red blood cells and plasma, or when an underlying coagulopathy, such as a patient on warfarin, is complicating the clinical picture. Tranexamic acid, on the other hand, seems to be gaining momentum, although it's really only based on this one trial, the CRASH-2 trial. It is a cheap drug, it's relatively easy to give, and there's been quite a track record with it already, for gynecologic patients and patients bleeding in the OR. The Crash 2 trial did have its problems, it was a very diverse population. Perhaps once they start doing the sub-analyses, we'll have a better idea of exactly which patients will benefit most by it. But so far overall, it looks like there's about a 1.5% decrease mortality with tranexamic acid in general for the trauma patient.
1: Stop.
0: Let's say you have a 70-year-old man who's got a history of AFib, who's on warfarin, he slips on the sidewalk, smashes his head, and comes in altered. You know, normally we have to wait a few hours for the FFP to thaw. You know, sometimes the patients in triage for a while, there's a delay, and then by the time the, the, you even start reversing the INR, it's kind of too late in a way. That's when this drug octoplex came along and some of the neurosurgeons are using this medication they recommend that the emergency doctors use it early on to try and rapidly reverse the INR and it has shown to be able to rapidly reverse the INR like within an hour the INR is completely reversed what's your guys take on prothrombin complex concentrates like octoplex in the trauma
2: patient so it actually does work, and it's almost immediate, the effect, not an hour, but it's right after you give it, the INR is pretty much corrected. The indications that we have are that the INR is greater than 1.5, and the patient has significant bleeding or hemorrhage. And you would give it with some vitamin K, I believe you get 10 milligrams of vitamin K plus the octoplex. Okay, so you're
0: actually waiting for the INR to come back, because that's, that's also a delay. You know, the, the patient's triaged, they get examined, you order a CT head, you order your INR, comes back ninety minutes later.
1: No, it comes back hemolyzed. You re- <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, and then and then that's going to trigger what you do. I question whether if you have someone who you know is on Coumadin who just smashed their head and has a huge bleed, you know, should we even bother waiting for the INR? Should we be?
2: It's a good point, but. Um- how many patients have you seen in the ED that are on uh, Coumadin and their INR is less than 1.5? It's not an insignificant number. So in general, I think we are waiting for the INR to come back. So one thing's pretty certain is that the INR will get reversed very quickly. And uh, I think the part that's uncertain is what's the clinical benefit for those patients and also what are the complications?
1: So you're kind of touching on it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt it makes the number better. It makes the INR better. That's just a number. Remember, so we have no idea whether does that make the patient clot in that first couple hours? We actually don't know. I mean, if you remember, I mean, I was always taught when you start somebody on Coumadin, you give them the fragment, and once their INR is 2 to 3, you keep the fragment for another couple days because their body doesn't have the anticoagulation effect. A lot of people don't really do that, but anyway, that's what we're taught. Talk- I don't know all the literature behind that particular thing, but I wonder if this is the same, the opposite. If you lower their INR, do they still, do they clot that quickly? I'm not sure. The studies haven't shown any outcome difference like sort of the that matter like death from these head injuries death from these bleeds and there's one, one study on the journal thrombosis in 2008 and it sort of just raises a bit of a red flag and in this study there were actually quite a number of thrombotic events and keep in mind these people if they're on cumin and they're on it for a reason they've probably had some thrombotic event so these are actually you could argue the highest risk people for thrombosis so i would just hesitate to fully recommend this at this point i think Probably
2: need more study on it. So let me give you this scenario though. You got a guy like uh, Anton suggested comes in. He's got a, a big subdural or intracerebral bleed from trauma, and his INR comes back and is three point five. And I think medically, legally, and from judgment of your peers, you, you say I'm not going to reverse this guy's coumadin. I think you'd be on pretty thin ice. What? Well, not, not making that number look better, Dave. Well, first of all, Mike, we're in Canada. We don't practice <laughs> medically legally. We practice with common sense and
1: judgment no I think well that's, let, me, uh, let me say well, what if he had a GI bleed would you would you give it to him then well I think you said not reverse it I'm just saying not reverse it with prothrombin complex concentrate huh. you can order the FFP yes they have to thaw it. it doesn't come right away if you give the FFP at 60 or 90 minutes does it actually work quicker? or does it start clotting their blood within say two two and a half hours then from when they arrive maybe the prothrombin complex maybe even though you made their INR better the sort of effects of it aren't for six hours. Like, I'm just saying we don't know that yet. I don't think we have the numbers. Since they haven't shown any difference in the outcomes.
0: Right, so you're waiting You're waiting know. for the randomized control trial that shows hard outcomes. Yeah,
1: no, after saying all that, if I have a GI bleed and the INR is 3, whatever, they're on Coumadin, I will reverse it. It kind of depends, I guess, if the FFP is ready. If not, and I'm just... Just getting the INR or whatever. Yeah, well, I you know, I will. I have given this before. I'm not saying I absolutely don't use it, but I guess just with some hesitancy, not sure whether I'm really doing the right thing or not. I think I it just like brings it.
0: up the point that any patient on Coumadin that has a head injury,
2: really, we should be acting quickly.
1: I think so. Yeah, I think that's probably the most important thing.
2: Yeah, and just remember, if you're going to use FFP and vitamin K, probably three to four units is about adequate dose to um, completely reverse anticoagulation. So
0: So let's say we had the same guy who ended up doing well from his warfarin-associated head injury. Let's say after that he was advised never to take warfarin again for his AFib and instead to go on aspirin and clopidogrel for his AFib prophylaxis of stroke. I understand that the combination of aspirin and clopidogrel in some studies, has shown just as high a risk for bleeding complications as warfarin has. I've also heard that just Plavix alone really has a much higher risk than we ever thought before of bleeding. Can you tell me a little bit about, first, any literature that you know about in terms of antiplatelets and trauma? And then also, if someone does come in on lots of antiplatelet agents at high doses, let's say, trauma patient who's who's obviously bleeding what would you do to try and reverse them
1: yeah so you're kind of sick i mean i was really surprised when i saw there's i think two main ones are the ones i'm thinking of where they showed that you know they looked at all comers with head injury and aspirin patients the plavix patients both and the cuminin patients and yeah like plavix with anything either plavix alone or with aspirin was really really bad outcomes it was as bad as cumin, or in fact one of them showed it was worse terms of their outcome of the head injury so i was really surprised because i always thought of plavix in terms of risk as like maybe a little bit worse than aspirin in terms of what you can do about it it's tough you're kind of stuck giving platelets doesn't really help there's no reversal agent you sort of just deal with it and
2: acceptably i mean (laughs) You sort of treat any bleeding you see and Uh, do you know some centers do give platelet transfusions, but the effect of the drug is still present in the in the blood. So I agree with you. It's probably not all that evidence based a decision to do. The bottom line what I take from those
1: studies is we should just sort of respect the injury of the patient on cumin, whether it's head injury or any other you know, yeah. any other kind of trauma, just really respect that Plavix a lot more, because I certainly do now.
2: Yeah,
0: especially if they're on the combination. And there's really very few indications now for a combination of aspirin and clopidogrel. You know, post-stent, that's about it. I mean, and I see lots of patients coming into the emergency departments with all kinds of bleeding. They've
1: had either a TIA or stroke. They can't take Coumadin for whatever reason. They've had some previous head bleed or whatever. They failed Plavix. They were on Plavix, which was considered a little step up from aspirin, and then they come out with another TIA and people are stuck. Yeah. Can't put them on Couminin. I got to do something. Add in aspirin. So, one of my favorite quotes is don't just do something, stand there. So, sometimes you just got to bite and just keep them on Plavix. Don't add in the aspirin.
0: When it comes to big bad bleeds in patients who are on antiplatelets like aspirin, clopidogrel, or Agrinox, there are some experts who recommend reversing the platelet dysfunction with ddavp and six units of platelets that's the end of part one of this trauma episode please go on to part two where we'll talk about the pearls and pitfalls of trauma from head to toe